You know, Mother Teresa, when she visited America, said that she experienced a kind of poverty here that she did not experience in other countries, which is interesting because America is not impoverished. I mean, we got everything under the sun, am I right? We got the latest technology, we got sneakers and the best foods and expensive cars, and we pretty much have it all. What kind of poverty could she possibly be talking about? But if you have gone overseas, and I have a few times uh, to more impoverished countries, I actually saw something I didn't expect to see. And I think I saw what um, Mother Teresa saw. Uh, for example, a couple years ago, I went to an orphanage, and I'm like, I am ready to see poverty face to face. I'm ready to see those kids. And so we went there, and I was looking at the kids in the orphanage, and I'm like, something is not right. These kids look incredibly happy. How can they be happy? They have so little. But you know what they had? They had community. And it made me kind of feel like, okay, who's the poor? <laughs> who's the poor? Who's the real poor? It just seems like in America, we have a poverty of community and a poverty of relationships. And I just want to ask you if you know what I'm talking about. Now, if you're in college, maybe you can just wave your hand at me. Okay, there you are. And chances are you're not feeling that. And I kind of know what you mean. When I was my first year in the dorms, they stuck three of us in one room. And we had to share a bed. I'm just kidding. But it was really crammed, right? And so community was rich during that time. But here's the thing. One day when you leave the comforts of college and then you will be on this side. And it's a little bit different. Maybe you get married. Maybe you don't. But it's just a little different. Like how do I explain it? Like you go to work and you're driving in your maybe big car and you're driving alone, right? And then you get to the office, maybe it's a cubicle, and you're, our world is getting more and more virtual. So you're working with people, but it's like through a screen, it's virtual people, you know? More and more so, some people work alone, some people work in groups. And then you come home, and I don't know if you have dinner with a family, I don't know if you have a family, but it seems like if you have kids and you put them to bed, then everyone goes to their individual screens. You know what I'm talking about. Some go to Netflix, some go to Pinterest. I still don't understand the interest in Pinterest. Some go Facebook, and it's like, you know, I got friends. You got virtual friends, like virtually no friends, okay? I mean, I mean that's not real face-to-face -face community, right? And then you go to bed, and next day you do it over again. America suffers from loneliness. America suffers from disconnectedness. Can you connect to that sense of disconnectedness? Are you here today and you're like, yeah, we got a lot of stuff, but it feels pretty empty. Now, if that's you, if that's going to be you, if you can kind of relate to that, this is the big idea of this message here today. We're wrapping up the series. Next week, we're going to start on the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really excited about that. But we got to finish here as we talk about community. 
This is the big idea. I want you all to know that the first followers, when Jesus walked up to certain people and he said, come and follow me, after they said yes, it was not just Jesus and me, like American Christianity. I said yes to Jesus. It's Jesus and me. It's my life and my decisions, and I will follow the Lord. It's just Jesus. No, 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 no. If you look at the original context, those first followers, when they said yes to Jesus, they were saying yes to joining a small group of like-minded followers. You can't miss this from the Gospels. You say yes to following Jesus, it's not just like, okay, Lord, it's just me and you. No, 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 no. You are going to join a group of 12, and you are going to do everything together. Now, I want you to think about this. Now, I'm thinking about this because my, my, my boy just turned 11, and he had an epic sleepover, okay? And so I'm looking around, and I'm counting to the number of heads, and I'm like, that's 12. And I started to realize that was the reality of the Lord Jesus for three, oh, actually, more like a year and a half. They're always there. And that was my experience last weekend. I was in my back. They're always there. I was in my living room. They're I was in my kitchen. They're always there. I was in the bathroom. No, they weren't there. But it just felt like they were always there. Now, I want you to imagine this. You say yes to Jesus. You say yes to joining this small group of like-minded people, and you are spending all kinds of time together. You're eating together. You're traveling together. How much time did it take to go from one city to the next? You're always together. You're talking on the road. You're eating together. You're sleeping by the roadside, by the fire, having conversations over the fire together. What do you do after dinner? I mean, it's not like they all went to their screens and played video games, right? They had each other. They would talk. They would talk. They would talk. They would talk. And then sometimes people would invite them over. So you go to so-and-so's house, and you would eat and fellowship together. And then even one time, Jesus is like, you know, I'm going to take some time away from the maddening crowds, and I'm going to take my disciples so they would rest together. They would do everything together. That was the reality of the first small group. And so today, I thought it would be really cool to end the series by talking and sharing the story of the very first small group. It was the 12. It was the 12. The 12 who did everything together. Now, um, I can't really tell the story without introducing who they were, the names, maybe a little bit of the personality, some of the group dynamics. So let's, let's open our scriptures to Matthew 10. Don't know if you've ever heard a story of the first small group, but here it is. Jesus, if you know, was in public ministry for three years, about halfway through at the halftime mark. He decided to make a movement away from the masses, away from the crowd, and he started to focus on 12 men. He chose 12 men, and he spent most of his time with the 12. In fact, in the last week, the most precious week, it was a lot of time with the 12. 
He was investing and investing in a small group of people. Now let me introduce the group of people to you. Matthew 10, verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter. You know what Peter means? Peter means rock. Right here we have the name of the very first original before there was Sylvester Stallone, the very first Rocky. And Jesus called him out. Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Now, a little interesting um, story. John would go on to write the gospel of Matthew, no, I'm done, <laughs> of John, right? Now, it's interesting. Uh, back then, you just didn't really, like, name yourself too much. There was some humility, and so he put a little code name in the gospel to identify himself whenever he came up, and his name, and the name that he used to describe himself was the disciple whom Jesus loved. I just thought it was really funny. Like, you imagine later on the other disciples read the gospel, and they're like, what did he call himself? Oh, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, oh, really? Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's the name of 12 men. Now, I think this is very interesting. If you look and compare these 12 with other synoptic gospels and the other listing of the 12, what you will find is that the first four is the first four. And then the next four is the next four. And then the last four is the last four. Peter always leads the first four. Um, Philip always leads the second group. And James, the son of Alphaeus, always leads the third group. Now, what, what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, there are subgroups within a big group. Why? Well, it sounds like Jesus was not equally close with every single person, even though he chose from the masses 12, that he actually went deeper with the three. And then there were subgroups, which means that if you join a home group, you will probably be closer to some than others. You will probably be closer to three. Some of you feel bad about that. No, I should be equally close to everyone. Well, no. Jesus chose three. You will probably find yourself being closer to some. Not everyone, and that's okay. First observation, group dynamics. Subgroups within the big group. Here's another thing. Here's another thing to take note. Let's say you're in a small group. Let's say you're in a church and you're looking around and you're looking around in your small group. And you're like, you know, some of these people are super different from me. Like with, you guys, you guys know the feeling. Some of these people, I feel like I share nothing in common. Life stage, hobby, so different. Some of them are just strange and weird. Amen. Someone was laughing because you can relate. Well, uh, let me point this out. If you take a close look at the people who are in this group, you got Matthew, who is the what? You have the tax collector. Okay, the tax, you've heard, probably heard this story. Who are the tax collectors? You probably know. Uh, these were people who were colluding with invading government. You just imagine the Nazis, they invaded France, and then certain Frenchmen said, yes, I will be a tax collector and collect taxes for the Nazis and fleece my own people. Those were the tax collectors. Matthew was one of them. 
They hated Matthew. Oh, okay. Everyone just generally hated Matthew. Everyone. Okay, you were like a good Jewish person. You hated Ah, but who hated him the most? Look at number 11. Hello, did you guys see that? Simon the who? The zealot. Oh my, do you know a zealot? Okay, you got the tax collectors and they're colluding with the government. You got the zealot who wants to overthrow the government. You could not find two more people who are at odds with each other. And they're in the same small group. You guys see that? Now, here's the thing. Now, here's the thing. Uh, zealots, they would, they, they, were, they would often be violent. And sometimes they would assassinate people. And sometimes they would assassinate government officials. And sometimes, who would they assassinate? Tax collectors. Now, you got to be like, Jesus, are you sure you really want to put them in the same group? Are you sure that's a wise move? Because what if you wake up in the morning and you, you feel the embers, the glow from the campfire, and one of them is dead because he was accidentally stabbed in the night? So the implication here is, like, you could find two people, couldn't be more different, but if they are following Christ... They have way more in, in common than they have apart. And they're brothers and they're sisters. Wow. That's quite a message. And so you have the 12. There you go. Now, um, the 12 are many things. But as I was looking through the scriptures and seeing how they would live and how they operate, how they function and how they would live, it, it seemed like they, it sort of like two things sort of emerged in what they were as a group, like what they stood for, what they were doing, what their purpose was. And the first thing is they were a learning community. The 12 were a learning community. They called themselves disciples. Disciple is a student. They would call Jesus rabbi. That means master. They were clearly they were there to learn. Every day was a learning opportunity. Every conversation with Jesus was a learning opportunity. But it wasn't just that. They would learn together. Now, uh, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 4, we're going to go through a lot of scripture today. But I'm going to go really quick. And if you don't know the scripture very well, that's fine. You can go and do some more research like after the message. That's cool. Mark chapter 4. Uh, if you got a Bible, open it up. It's on your iPhone, open it up. We're going to go through a lot of this. Let's go to chapter 4. Now, let me set up the scene. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4, you have Jesus. And I think this is the very first time that he's standing before crowds of people. There's uh, hundreds of people there. Maybe there's thousands of people here. And Jesus is like giving his first teaching. It's a big deal. And I'm wondering if maybe the disciples know. Jesus is doing his debut before the masses. It's a big deal. I wonder if they were excited. Like John is saying to Peter, hey, the master is going to bring it today. You know? So Jesus gets up and he speaks in a parable. That part is not surprising. But the part that is kind of surprising is that Jesus gets up there, this, you know, before the masses, and he talks about Dirt. Oh, you know. I don't know if you've read the story. Four different kinds of dirt. And what happens when you toss seed on 
the different kinds of dirt. And here's the thing, he doesn't explain it. And then he, he goes and he ends and he goes, he who has ears to hear, let him, and then let him hear. And then he just, he like sits down next to Bobby and he just chills. Now, I don't, I don't know if you know how weird that is, okay? Uh, the, 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 there, there, there's Jared, there, there, there's a Matthew, and they're, they're in the crowd, and he's like, okay, he's talking about dirt, okay. And then they, they walk home. So you imagine the guy who walked miles and miles and miles to go get over here to, to listen to Rabbi Jesus. Jesus talks about dirt. He walks miles and miles and goes back home. Now he's sitting at his uh, dinner table, and he's with his wife and his kids, and his wife says, well, what did Rabbi Jesus talk about? And the man goes, well, he talked about dirt, different kinds of dirt, and what you do with, I don't know what he was talking about. What would what, what it mean? I, I, don't, I don't know. He, he's saying what he's saying, and then I just, I just got up and left. Oh, okay. Dirt. But now look at uh, Mark 4. Now look at Mark 4. Mark 4 right over here. And verse, starting in verse, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. For those outside, everything is in parables. Now, what Jesus begins to do to this 12 plus others who have come and said, what does this parable mean? If you keep on reading, Jesus explains exactly what he means in the parable. He just goes through everything. This means this, this means this, this means this. Now, you imagine like, you know, uh, uh, Peter and, 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 and John are there and they're asking questions like, Lord, you mean that when you get up there every time, this is what's going on, that there's some people who are falling asleep and there's other people who are, yes. And then you imagine John going, Lord, Lord, Lord. well, you talk about this, uh, uh, this soil that is a good heart and they receive the word and they grow. What goes into making that soil strong? What, what is that good heart? And you imagine Jesus answering those questions. And so there's this back and forth. There's this, this dialogue. Now, don't miss this. In the context of this scripture, Jesus gives this teaching. A small group comes up to Jesus and says, what does this mean? And so they are grappling with the scripture and everything that it means. And Jesus explains and they're like, oh, that's what it means. And they start to apply. And then the lights go on. And Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, if I were to be super literal, this means if you have a small group, that you can grapple scripture together with, wrestle with it, ask questions, how are we going to apply it? Then can it be that Jesus is saying to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God? But if you don't have a community like this, and if you don't have a community that helps you process scripture, you can do it together and make sense of riddles, then are you kind of on the outside? And is everything sort of just a parable? I don't know. It sounds like that's what Jesus is saying, if you want to be super literal with the context. So can I ask you guys, do you have a small group? 
where not only are you doing life together, but you're grappling with scripture together. You're talking about what it means. You're talking about how to apply it. Do you have something like that? And it seems like the implication is that if you do, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Do you have that? Do you want that? You know, uh, the small group, they wouldn't just get together and, and discuss scripture. It wasn't just getting together and just learning and learning and more learning. But you know what happens. If you turn now to Luke chapter 9, you're going to see kind of a shift. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. It wasn't just let's get together and discuss, let's get together and discuss. But in Luke chapter 9, you're going to see a shift. Now, what was happening before is that it really seemed like it was the crowds and Jesus, the crowds and Jesus. But here in Luke chapter 9, you see a new development. It's the crowds, and Jesus is sending the 12 out to the crowds. Jesus is now getting his ministry done through people, through the 12. And the shift, the first missions trip is right here in chapter 9. So Jesus assembles them. He gives them instructions, kind of like the Bible study, I guess. Then he just sends them out, and then they come back. Now they come back and read verse 10. On their return... The apostles told him all that they had done. Let me repeat that. On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. Now, what does that sound like to you? The apostles telling them all that they had done. What does that sound like to you? What is that? That's, that's a debriefing meeting. Is that not a debriefing meeting? So here you see a pattern. Now, I would say this. This is the problem a lot of times on Sunday morning. This is the problem a lot of times with Bible study. It's just you study, and then you get together the next week, and then you, you study more, and then you get together, and then you study more. And, you know, whether or not you apply it, ah, that's just optional. You know, we really like to study. But that's not what we see here. What we see here in Luke 9 is Jesus, they would have a study, hear the instructions, then they would go, then they would apply, then they would get back together again and they would debrief and say, okay, what did you do? What happened? Let's talk about it. And that made the learning all the richer when you come back and you go, okay, what did we do about it? Are there God sightings? What did we see God do? That's where the real excitement comes. Now I want you just to imagine this, right? Uh, Peter and John, they go, and uh, they come back, and they're sitting with Jesus. And Jesus goes, okay, what did you see? And Peter and John share, and they go, so, uh, Master, we, we, uh, we went to this one city, and uh, we saw this guy. And so Peter's always the first to talk, you know, he goes, so, and so we saw this guy and we said, peace be to you. And then the guy said, huh? And then Peter said, um, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the guy said, huh? And then uh, Peter said, have you heard of Jesus of Nazareth? Let me tell you about who he is and what he's doing and everything that's going on. 
And so then for the next, I don't know, Lord, I just was just gabbing and gabbing and talking. It was really exciting. For the next hour, I was just sharing about everything that's been going on. And then I had nothing more to say. And I turned to John and I go, John, um, you should say something. And John goes, do you have anyone that's sick? And the man actually happened to have a daughter who was blind. And we're like, okay, bring in the daughter. And so the, the, the daughter came in, and the man brought her by the hand. And then, and then Jesus, we started praying for her, just like we, we've seen you pray for people. And it was amazing. Like in the middle, that we were like laying hands on, we were praying. And all of a sudden, the, the woman just started screaming, ah! and we were like, oh, this is really happening. And Jesus, when we left, now imagine all the, the, the rest of the 11 are looking at this, and their, their mouths are all, when we left, this woman who couldn't see had her sight totally restored. That must have been some debrief meeting, huh? Now, you see my point. It's not just learning, learning, learning. It's let's learn. Let's do. Let's come back together and discuss. Where did we see God moving? Uh, I, I have a couple pictures of some of our home groups who have been mobilized and actually not just learning but actually doing. And it's a huge doing component of their learning. And so here's the first picture. Um, there, there is, is Quest. Got his shirt buttoned a little bit low. That's, there he is. Because in Vietnam, it's kind of hot. Um, and there is Scott. I, I think he's making a money a sign. Uh, there he goes. But, but it, it, you guys, my, my point is we were talking about missions. And it's not like you just want to keep, let's just keep on talking about missions. And mi Here is a home group that's like, you know, let's go and do it. I mean, not everyone in the home group went, but a fair number of people did. And they bonded. They had such a rich, amazing experience. And they come back and you see God work and you know something, you're changed. Oh, here's another one. Uh, this is Darlette's home group, okay. Um, actually, if you're a part of Darlette's home group, can you just wave your hand at, at people right here? Okay, there they are. Um, and, and so one thing that they did, there, there's uh, Matthew holding a sock, but it's more than just a sock. It's underwear, and it's like a, a toothbrush, and it's got like a, a neutral grain bar in it. And it, they were making like a homeless care package, right? And it was really cool because they got their kids going and were like, you know, we're not going to just talk about the poor. We're actually going to empower each other so we can go and serve the poor. And so they would go and they would serve the poor. And then we talked about, you know, when you give it to them, don't just be like, here you go, you know, or like, have a good day. But they started talking about, you know, uh, we want to say something that really honors Christ. So say, God bless you. God loves you. And we started talking about that. And so, again, we are learning communities. Can I get an amen from the people? Okay. But you know something? They weren't just learning communities. They weren't just learning communities. They were also a loving family. When Jesus called the 12 to come, it wasn't just come and learn from me. But it was come and learn how to love by being a part of this loving family. And every person had a role and every person had a place. But let me just do a little bit of a poll. Speaking of loving families, how many of you grew up and you, you had a sister or a brother that was kind of close in age to you? A little poll, little poll, go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. Now, these people who are raising their hand, I want to continue to ask you some questions. How many of you say that you actually are close to that brother or to that sister that's close to you in age, raise your hands. Probably most of the same people. Now here's the bingo question, okay? How many of you say that when you were growing up, maybe even, how many of you say that you would fight a lot? Raised, okay, some of you are like, yes, that's definitely me. Okay, that's definitely me too. My brother's two and a half years older than I am. Uh, we used to fight a lot when we were growing up, and we still do. 
it's because we play board games and he cheats. <laughs> That's why. That's the only reason why. We get super competitive, like nothing brings out the competition like my older brother. And so we would get together and we would fight. One time he left the table. He left the table because he was so mad. And I went to go to the bedroom and bring him back out. And he wouldn't come back. So I had to give him a dollar to come back out. And, you know, it was funny. I was like, Dave, you come back out and we play a game. I'll give you a dollar. He looked at me and he said, give me that dollar. And I did. And then we went back and played. That's how we roll. That's how we roll with my family. But here's the thing. If you're close... You fight. Did the disciples fight? Oh, they fought. There was no exception there. They fought. Now, um, I'm going to tell you what they fought about. And for those of you who know, you kind of know. But for those of you who don't know, you might just kind of roll your eyes a little bit. Like, really? They fought about that? Ah, but before we stand in judgment of what they would fight about, let me just ask you. Have you ever been in a group where you felt overshadowed by another person? Even to the point where you're like, I don't really want to be a part of this group anymore. Have you ever been in a group where you felt like, I don't really feel very appreciated in this group? Like, I don't feel known. I don't feel people appreciate me. I feel like people like other people more than me. Is that anyone here? Yeah. Now, at the heart, we're probably fighting about the same thing they fought about. And they would fight about which one of us is greatest. But it takes different forms. Like, which one of us is the most well-liked? Which one's the most valuable? Which one is the most appreciated? Which one is the most cherished? We're not that different. They would fight about this a lot. Sometimes they would fight about this at the worst opportunities you can imagine. Like, Jesus would talk about his death, and then the 12 would fight about this. Yes, that really happened. And sometimes they were on the road, and they were getting into a dispute, and Jesus said, hey, when we're on the road, what would you fight about? And they're like, um... Which one of us is the greatest? Well, I think that Jesus had a lot of opportunities to talk to them about this issue. And every time it was unforgettable, but I think this one time when Jesus talked about it, I guess you could say he was the most unforgettable. I guess you could say that he saved his very best for last. Turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and was going back to the Father, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel. I want you to imagine the scene. It's the Last Supper. Jesus is the honored guest. All eyes are on Jesus. And then suddenly, Jesus grows quiet. Jesus stands up from the table and does an about face, and he just leaves. Now, John, who is by his side, looking at Jesus, Peter is over there, motions to John. John, where did Jesus go? And then John motions back at Peter and goes, 
why do you always ask me? I don't know. And they're all waiting. Maybe some nervous chatter, five minutes, ten minutes. And Jesus comes back. And he's got like a bucket. Actually, there's a bucket right here. I have no idea what it's doing right there. He comes back, and there he comes back with a bucket. And he's got a towel around his waist. And <laughs> people were looking at him like, what are you wearing? You know, what's going on here? Now, um, <laughs> it was funny. Um, I, I was in the car. There was a bunch of kids. I'm not going to name any names. I was in the car. It was a very small car, but kind of crammed inside here. And then suddenly in the middle of this ride, I'm just driving very innocent, I was assaulted with the smell of rancid vinegar, okay? I'm looking around, and I'm like, okay, who did something? And then I found out that smell was coming from me. No, I'm joking. It, it came from... It came from it's basically my, okay, it was really bad foot odor is what I was trying to say. I should have said that better. But it was really, really bad, bad, bad foot odor from one of my kids, you know? Because, yeah. And that happened. Now, the, 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 the point is that feet are, everyone knows, this is a dirty, smelly things, rancid, it's just gross. And in this culture, they would save that responsibility for the lowest kind of slave, no one respectable would do that. No one respectable would do that. You got the lowest slave to do that. Here is Jesus. <laughs> you want to know who's the greatest? And then he steps, he stoops down, and he's washing, and he starts with Peter, and Peter resists, you know, but he basically corrects Peter. And then he goes to John, and then he goes to Andrew, and then he goes one by one to the disciples. I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe they're silenced. This is weird. This is amazing. This is beautiful. This is, wow. You know who also got his foot washed? Judas. Judas also got his feet washed by Jesus. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now what Jesus was doing here, he was foreshadowing what he was going to do on the cross. But it's the same concept. It's seeing a person's deepest need and stooping low to meet that need. That's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He saw our deepest need, and our deepest need was forgiveness before the wrath of God. And so he stooped down so low, and he died on the cross. But here's the implication. Jesus turns to a small group of like-minded followers, and he says, you need to do that for one another. Can I ask you something? Do you know the deepest needs of the people around you? College students, do we know your deepest needs? How about people who are empty nesters? How about people who are senior citizens? Do we know your deepest needs? Can I ask you like a stupid question? How are we supposed to know the deep needs of another person if we don't have relationship with them? How are we supposed to know? 
Isn't it by meeting with someone on a regular basis and doing life together and opening your life up to another person, then you know their deepest needs? But if we are not connected to one another, if we're not committed in some sort of small group format, then how are we supposed to know what the deep needs are? And Jesus says, you will be blessed, not just if you know this, but if you do it. Well, I, I did promise you that I was going to tell the small group story. And so I'll try to finish um, telling you the rest of the story. Now, after this, um, Jesus does get arrested, and everything that he predicted happened to him. He was arrested. He was sentenced to death. He was tortured, and he was killed. Now, I got to think that the next day, that Saturday, had to be the darkest day in human history, or maybe it was the Friday when it happened. But can you imagine the disciples? Can you imagine their grief? Can you imagine their despair? I mean, what happens when the central person of all your dreams and all your hopes gets taken away from you? Now, what I find surprising, though, is that when Jesus comes back to life and he appears to his disciples, what I find surprising is that he finds them together. What are they doing together? You know, you would have imagined when the central person of their hopes and dreams gets taken away and all is lost, they would be disbanded. They would go their separate ways. They would go back to their nets. You know, they would just, but that doesn't happen. You find them together. Why? Well, I think the thinking is that they have nothing. They have nothing. But they have each other. And there was a comfort that could only be found in one another. And so when Jesus comes, he finds them together, and their joy was multiplied. They saw him together. They celebrated together. Now, this small group, I, I think the apostles enjoyed the fellowship so much that they really tried to hold on to it for as long as they could. But eventually, the vision of Jesus prevailed, and they were all sent out. And so the small group disbanded. And then one by one by one, they all died for that faith. James was the first to go. He was beheaded with a sword. He was John's brother. I bet you John just missed him terribly. Peter was crucified. But before he was crucified, he had to witness his wife being crucified. And then he was crucified. And he begged to be crucified in a different way because he wasn't worthy of being crucified. And so they turned him upside down. Andrew was crucified as well with the, the cross that's an X. And he lingered on the cross for maybe like two days. And as people would pass by, he would share with them about Christ and call them to put their trust and faith in Christ. One by one, I believe it was Thomas that was stoned. One by one, until finally it was John. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. He had to sleep on a stone slab. I imagine he might have spent his time alone. And I just kind of wonder, what would he think about as the days would pass? Maybe he would think about his friends. Soon after that, John passed away. And the day that he was always looking forward to finally came to pass. And he was reunited in the glory of Jesus Christ. 
But I wonder also, because that had to be the best part where he was standing face to face before Jesus again. But I got to wonder, I also got to wonder, maybe it was before that moment or maybe it was after that moment when he saw his 12 friends again. Actually, it was 11. Can you imagine that moment? Maybe he sees his brother. He hasn't seen his brother for a long time. He misses his brother dearly. He sees his brother. Imagine Peter's there and he's motioning to the other 11. Hey, guys, look, it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And they're all laughing. That had to be the sweetest reunion, sweetest reunion. You guys, there is going to be a time when you will look back at the season of life when you were here at CLC. And I guarantee you that if you spend it Getting to know people, maybe in a small group setting, loving people, learning together. When you look back at this time, you won't be filled with regrets. This is quite an amazing opportunity that we have in one another. Let's not waste it. Pray with me. Father, I, um, I thank you that as we look in your word you have shown us a better way, a better way of living, a better way of following you. And it's not just alone. It's not just Jesus and me. But it's being with a small group of like-minded people who are following the Lord together. So I pray that you would put it in the hearts of uh, the people here to find this small group if they don't have it. And if they do have it, to go deeper. And may we just learn the joy of learning and loving and serving and being your people together. In Jesus' name we pray.